over this service, over what God wants to do in this house. And also just remember those that are at Youth Congress right now. As there is a word about to be preached to a young generation who is like what Sister Foster said tonight, is in a battle. And we want to remember that we also are people that are combatants in that battle. That we have an equal responsibility. So if you would, pray with me. Jesus, I pray this evening, Lord, over this service, over what you have given to me to bring to the house. What you have given to me to bring to those that are online this evening, Lord. Let me not get in the way of it. Let my flesh not get in the way of what it is you want to say, Lord. We know your word is more than anointed. It is a powerful tool that can be used for good. That is meant to sever those bonds with this world and help those that are in bondage be broken free of that. And so I pray as I preach this word tonight, Lord, let it be in me as I preach it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for the word. So by a show of hands here this evening, have you ever heard that God is love? Has anybody ever heard God is love? So I ask you, what does that mean? What do you think that means? Formulate kind of what that means to you right now. I mean, in the context of what love is and compared to God. And God is the embodiment of love, a complete representation of love. So I would say, God is love, right? So when God sends his correction and his rebuke to us, have you ever gone through that season of rebuking and correction and just stopped and said, you know, God really loves me? Maybe you have. And if you have, I'd say you show a great deal of spiritual maturity. But I'm going to be honest, I haven't. I haven't reached that point where that's the first thought I think. I've not arrived there yet. I mean, I can think. My tire falls off the car. I hit a curve and the bus tire gets blown out. We bounce a check and it's, it comes back and the bill is higher than the original check was written for. Our foundation cracks. We need to fix it. Or one of our kids gets hurt and I end up spending 10 hours in the Liberty Hospital. It's not the first thought I think. God loves me. I'm not sitting there saying that. But I am so grateful for how he does show me things. You see, I can tell you where I am. This is where I'm at. I have found myself saying this little thing instead. God is in control. And I know that if God is in control, it's far better place than where I was before. Sometimes I just have to encourage myself in the Lord. Have you ever had to encourage yourself in the Lord? Have you ever had that moment when it seems like all is lost and in this season nothing good is going to come out of it? But that's when you take a little time out of your day. And you begin to raise a hand. And maybe there's a little praise that comes out of your mouth. Something that just starts small coming out. And that tiny theme begins to break the monotony of your life. The season you are currently stuck in starts to shift. But it seems counterintuitive. Almost unnatural if you have never done that. That is because our bodies want nothing to do with it. Our flesh shudders at the idea, but oh man, when I start to raise a hand, and I start to shuffle my feet, 
And I start to call out to God with a voice of triumph. All of a sudden, things begin to change and things start to go a different route than they were going before. You know what I call this? I call this throne room shuffling. You know why? It's because when I begin in that season of discouragement, when I am in the valley, I can say, Lord God, you are mighty. You are worthy of all the praise. And so I start to lift a hand. And before I know it, that praise starts going to heaven. I start feeling like I am transferred to that throne room. And as I begin to get transferred to that throne room, I begin to dance in that throne room. I begin to shout in that throne room. All of a sudden, there's victory in that throne room. That is the place that God is calling us to. That throne room place. That we can go deeper in God. We've heard it preached over the last couple of services. God wants our church to go deeper. But in order for us to go deeper, we must begin to understand the principle of encouraging ourselves in the Lord. We must begin to say, Lord, no matter the season, no matter the victory that I have not seen yet, no matter the situation I find myself in, I will forever praise your holy name. Why do I do that? Because he's worthy. He's worthy of it all. And I tell you, that's where victory happens. That's where I can tell you nothing can stop our God. We just sang a song about God in the center of it all. And when he's in the center of it all, it doesn't matter what's going on. We will find peace in that center. Yes, Lord, you are worthy, Jesus. And, and to be truthful, sometimes, not to belittle anybody's situation, but you've been through worse. You can look back and you can say, yeah, I've, I've, I've gotten over that valley. I've gotten through that, that hardship. And now that I'm on the other side of that hardship, there's victory. And in this opening scripture, we read that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. And really, it kind of disarms the debate that God is love if you were to read this out of context. The question posed, is God love or does God hate? Like I said, out of context, a word association with God, that word hate. The Bible says that God hates some things. God hates specific actions that we take as people. Proverbs tells us these six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth equal wicked imaginations, feet that be swift to running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Now this is an example of what God hates. So why was God showing hatred towards Esau? By what is said in this scripture passage, God should have hated Jacob, right? Not Esau. But to understand the opening scripture, we have to go back a little ways. We have to go back to the time and place it was written. God says, I have loved you in this scripture. And the people's response was, how have you loved us? Now that's a wildly bold question in my opinion. I've asked God in prayer some pretty severe questions in my life. But I've never 
found myself asking him how he ever loved me. But what was going on in the situation that caused the people to ask a question like that to God? What was bad enough to be happening to them that they would ask, how did you love us? In this opening text, we find the nation of Israel speaking with God through the prophet Malachi. Israel had had so much, they had truest favor with God in their lives. I mean, you look at Israel's blessings. You look at what Israel had. They had direct favor with God. They were in the presence of God. They, they lived being led by God. Blessings and favor reigned, and it was evident in the battles that they won and in the relationship that they had with God. But in this season, when Malachi is addressing the nation of Israel, they had seemingly been reduced to a small semblance of their former glory. And that is mainly because everything fell apart when they lost favor with God. It took Israel to tear down idols and rip down statues and fall on their faces in sackcloth and ashes just to get God to listen to them again. So what do they ask Him? Their question was, how did you love us? Now, I'm kind of one of those people that I... I could just imagine, you know, and I'm not God, but if I were thinking about this in this moment, I might start listing some things off. I might start saying, well, okay, this is how I've loved you. I took you out of Egypt. I led you through the wilderness. I tore down the, wall, the walls of Jericho. I built a temple. I built a second temple. I gave you King David, and I gave you King Solomon. And those are just small things that I've done for you. And that's probably what I would have done. And the re- the, the truth is that God had done so much for the people, but the moment things got tough or do not seem to go as intended or planned, the people begin to say, well, where are you, God? And how many times in our lives have we gone through a situation where we begin to just feel the, the push, the pull of the world, and things start to go sideways, and things don't go the way that we expect And we say, where are you, God? Where are you? I need you in this season. I feel so alone. I feel so isolated. I need you, Lord. How many times have we prayed those prayers? How many times have you felt that way? Can I tell you that's how Israel felt in this moment? Even though they're saying, how did you love us? The reality was that God loved them so much and so intimately that he would correct them. That he would lay down laws for them. That he would show them paths that they had to stay on. He would show them things they had to give up. He would put them through seasons of renewing and and growing. He would shave off the rough edges of who they were. And that's what God does with us sometimes. Sometimes you just have to go through the valley. Sometimes you just have to go through the trial. Because the only way that I'll find victory is if I start having those rough edges shaved off. And I start feeling the presence of God again in my life. And I get alone in a throne room situation where I begin to pray in a closet where nobody knows I'm praying. Nobody hears my prayers. But there I am. I'm praying, Jesus, I love you, Lord. I give you glory, Lord. Because you're worthy of it all. Jesus. So no matter the situation, no matter the season, no matter the circumstance, God can turn it around. 
God can change something that seems so against you into something that is ever and will be for you. God being who God is, He's never changing. And never going back on His Word. Israel served a great God. We serve a great God. And Jacob and Esau are referred to in Scripture as two warring nations. In Genesis 25, we read about soon-to-be Jacob and soon-to-be Esau. And it says, And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from the, thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was three scores years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, as a parent, I can say no one sits out to love their kids any differently. We, we, I don't think that any parent will say, you know, I love this one, not that one as much. You know, this one gets annoying, but this one's great. Right? We don't do that. No mom, no father would ever love their children any differently if they were truly living in the will of God. But we know that humanity is flawed. And sometimes we love our kids based on things they do or say. Who's ever been there where your kid comes in and they say, Oh, I'm so glad to see you today, Dad. I'm so glad that you're here. And in and your mind you say, Oh, I'm loved. I just, I'm just so loved. I know my wife feels that way every time she gets home, the dog greets her at the door. He doesn't greet me, though. I don't know what's going on there. But, you know, when it comes down to it, we don't set out to do that as people. We, we try to love our kids equally. We try to support them equally. But that is because God has put an example to us. God has given us an example of how we should live our lives, and he doesn't do that. God loves everyone. And I guarantee this, that he loves us more than any of us do. But I would say that parental love is perhaps the closest to love that God has for us, as I could ever imagine. The love of parents is transcendent, and that love brings with it a parallelism between different natures. You have a mom, you have a dad. Now this could be a typology where we look at this and we say, well, the church could be like mom and one the other could be like dad or father God, Jesus. But the mother loves with a deep spiritual complexity due to the child being born within her. When the church fulfills God's intentions for what the church should be, it will have the same type of love the mother possesses. 
A child is born, meaning a sinner goes down into these waters of baptism and takes on the name of Jesus. It's filled with the Holy Ghost. And because it happened within the church, the local assembly, the people would similarly love that individual as an example of when a mother loves a child. Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 through 35, he says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. A mother's love is so special, and it is a true blessing to the children. So should a church's love be for people. Rebecca loved the children within her, so Rebecca wanted to know what the internal struggle was going on inside. Now, man, I'm going to say this. We got no clue what childbirth's all about. We don't know. I've seen three kids be born, and I can tell you to this day, I still am amazed by the process of what happens. God is good. So Rebecca just wanted to know what's going on inside me. I feel something inside me. She knew that the only person or the only one who really could understand what was going on inside of her was God. So she entreated of God. She sought God. She wanted to know, God, what's actually happening inside my body? And the psalmist will let us into a little clue about how God does his handiwork before we ever meet our mothers or our fathers in this world. And it says, you made me all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. Oh, well, how well I know it. Mothers know. And in this case, Rebecca sees the struggle before the struggle ever comes to light. Feeling the struggle deep within who she is and the children fighting before ever taking a breath in this open air. Now we have heard stories of Jacob and Esau, the struggling brothers And the challenges they face, monumentally profound in this Christian story. The Word of God is always a lesson being illustrated and displayed. Like you and me, we learn from lessons in our lives. So we should also learn from lessons in others' lives. And Jacob and Esau are two historical figures. And their lives were not just a display of narrative, but our truth lived out in experience. The question we ask or should ask, who are these two men? Who is Esau and who is Jacob? Esau was a man who was talented and gifted and possessed a specific manly image. He was a man's man. He was a man that could go out into the woods and survive. He was a man that if you put him in a wilderness, he could, he could make it. But he was also a man who lived in the here and now capitalized on the present and gave little thought to the future. Esau had all the semblance of a man's man, but needed more vision and preparation. You see, Esau's lack of preparation and planning is evidenced when Jacob offers his brother soup to give Esau sustenance. And In Genesis 25, it tells us of this account of what's happening. and It says that Jacob had cooked 
Now, I'm going to read out of the Amplified, but I think we have the King James on the screen. But it said, reddish brown lentil stew one day. And when Esau came from the field and was famished, and Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a quick swallow of that red stuff there, because I am exhausted and I am famished. For that reason, Esau was also called Edom, red. And Jacob answered, he said, first sell me your birthright, the rights of the firstborn. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die if I do not eat soon, so of what use is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear an oath. So he swore an oath to him and sold him his birthright. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and got up and went on his way. In this way, Esau scorned his birthright. You see, in Esau's lack of preparation, Esau had not planned accordingly and gave up something he had yet to learn the true value of. And it's an interesting point that is made here in Scripture. What was Esau really giving up? What was Esau devaluing for food that would constitute giving up his birthright? You see, there is a misnomer that Esau did not know what was, he was giving up. Esau did know what he was giving up. The issue is that he did not value it as much as his own personal safety. And in the time of Jacob and Esau, families, they would have the eldest brother, the eldest son, as the one who would offer sacrifices and lead the family and would one day possess all that their father had. So why would you give up on what was now and what was here if you knew what you had promised? You see, Esau was given to impulse and poor discipline. So why do we wonder about God's choice of language in the opening scripture of God hating Esau? And here is the answer to that question. You see, we see Esau giving up on what God had promised him. And if Esau had been patient and had waited on the promises that would come through his birthright, then I would not be here preaching or teaching this message to you tonight. We would not hear this account of Esau, but this is who Esau was. Simply put, Esau was a person who put more value on pleasure and his own interest over what he had promised to him. Can I, can I submit to you tonight that Esau is a typology of our flesh? That there are times in our lives where we have a birthright. You have a birthright. You are standing in an inheritance of God's favor, of God's grace, his mercy. If you've been baptized in Jesus' name, if you've been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, then you have an inheritance. You have a birthright. Because you have been born again. You are renewed in his image. You have the capability to inherit the kingdom of God. And because of that, we must not allow ourselves to be like Esau is. And allow our flesh to make decisions that the spirit knows is wrong. That is the principle of who Esau was. We are in a fight for our lives. I am here, I know that our kids currently are at Youth Congress. 
And that right now, like Sister Foster said, there are things they deal with that we did not deal with. But I do not submit to the idea that we as adults are dealing with a very similar war. In our jobs and in our, our places of work, we are dealing with principalities that we don't understand, with powers that we don't understand, with things of the world that we are, are battling every single day. There's a push and a pull. Will you live for God or will you submit to the world's influence? I will not stand idly by while I watch coworkers and friends and family die to a world that doesn't love them, that doesn't value them, that doesn't care about them, it is in my desire that I would see all people find the truth that I once found in this church. That God is the Redeemer. He is the one that can set you free. It is Jesus who can do that. So I believe tonight that there's a call on all of our lives. Yes, like the young people, there is a call on their lives, but we all have a call. That is to reach somebody. That is to teach somebody a Bible study. That is to love somebody enough to take them to a dinner, to a coffee. That is enough to say, look, I know you're going through it, but I love you enough to say that you don't have to keep going through it. You don't have to keep going through that trial and that situation because I know a God that is greater than that situation. I know a God that is more capable to bring you out of that situation. So it brings me around to who is Jacob then? We know Esau, so we ask who is Jacob to understand the, the meaning, the entirety of this message, to capture the importance of this story. We have heard the meaning behind Jacob's name. He was a supplanter. He was a liar. Someone who would cheat and do all that he could to get the things he wanted out of life. So it was Jacob, the possessor of the promise, and Esau who would have been the possessor of the inheritance. But Jacob's pursuit of the promise showed that Jacob valued the things that Esau stood to inherit. That Jacob intently looked for opportunities to possess the rights of leadership for the entire family. Now, I don't doubt that Rebekah had planted seed in Jacob's mind at some point. And told him of the opportunity that was ahead of him to be the head of the household. But Jacob had something inside of him that if you're ever on your bread reading and you just flip through Genesis and there you go, the story's over, you can miss something about Jacob. The thing that we can miss is that these promises were not simply to inherit riches or power. No, these promises were the promises of God. Jacob coveted the opportunity to be the priest of the home. The reality was Jacob being head of the home and having direct access to God is the most valid form of this inheritance Jacob stood to gain. But Esau's birthright inheritance was that he would be the one who honored God for the entire family. So as the listener and reader, we can tell the turn of Jacob becoming the heir to the throne through a series of events unfolding in a specific order. So first, Rebecca plants a seed in Jacob's heart. That's similar to how when we come into the house of God and we hear the word preached for the first time, 
and we start to feel that prick in our heart and we start to understand that maybe there's more to this life than what we knew. That maybe God is really out there and he wants something and he wants to have maybe a relationship with me. And you hear a word preached and it pricks your heart. And you just thank God if, if, if you're there and, you're, and you hear me, Lord, hear my cries. And as you do that, God begins to open up your heart to have a deeper experience with him. The second was Esau desperately gives up his birthright to save his own life. And this sometimes can be where we find ourselves as Christians. The, the plans we had and the things that we thought we would do for God didn't come to fruition. Or we thought that, you know, I'd be further in my job, I'd be further in my career, I'd be able to see my kids not go down a path that I hoped they wouldn't go down. And so we give up our birthright. And third, Jacob dresses and puts on his disguise to steal the inheritance. And that's when there are people in our lives that sometimes can come in like a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing, speaking lots of good things into our ears, saying a lot of things that we hope we would hear. And before we know it, we're ensnared by the enemy's trap. We find ourselves walking away from God and no longer serving him. We must understand that God would have never allowed the inheritance to be transferred if Esau had not given up his birthright. The transfer of the birthright takes us back to our opening text. God loved Jacob but hated Esau. Types and shadows throughout the word of God highlight specific themes and knowledge so that we can understand our world when applied correctly. God loved Jacob. It is in the fact that Jacob wanted God and Esau was comfortable not having God. I'll say that again. Jacob wanted God and Esau was comfortable not having God. It's an amazing thing about God. God will correct those he loves. God will put on you things that will change you and shape you into who he wants you to be. But if you walk away from God, he's not going to stop you. He will call to you. He will try to prick your heart. He will give you messages. He will do everything in his power that he can do through human voices and even through prayer. But if you make the conscious decision to walk away from God, he will not stop you. And that is how Esau lived his life. Esau lived in such a way that he decided, I will not live for God, but instead I will live for myself in the here and now. Jacob was a hard-working man. Jacob spent 14 years working for one woman. That's a hard-working man. But that's how he lived his life. That's who Jacob was. Jacob's life was riddled with hardships and challenges. Jacob lived with nothing. He didn't see a whole lot happen. But an equally amazing thing, in my opinion, about God is that he will leave those who do not love him alone. And when we consider God and his ways of pursuing us, we have to believe that he does all of it in love and deep compassion. The depths of God are mysterious, 
But can I say that does not mean that they are unsearchable or unknowable? But they have some hidden things about them that require us to search them out. That is why when Pastor Foster's message a few Wednesdays ago, it was just so powerfully relevant for us today. We, we have to go deeper. It's that simple. It really is. God has called us to find discipline. God has called us to have a desire for discipline. But that desire for discipline can only come when we realize how much he loves us and how much we love him. If you want to hear God's voice, you got to get deep into the Word of God. You got to get deep into that prayer closet. You got to get deep into that time with Him and start building that relationship. God desires us to search Him out. God desires us to go deeper and search for those deeper things. One of God's mysteries is how He handles those of us who have gone astray, though. Esau had given up everything and went fully astray. Scripture gives us some insight into who Esau was. And when we see Esau again, his life is seemingly blessed. And it seems almost strange given that the inheritance had been taken from him. That his possessions and his large family should have been gone. Because the promise of God was that he would inherit all those things. But this is due to the inheritance being more than simply just a position or, or possessions. The brothers' reunion was right after Jacob had spent so much time going after Rachel. And at this moment, Jacob was a little fearful of the reunion. So imagine if you were, that you had taken your brother's inheritance, his birthright, and now you hear that, hey, I just got my wife, I just built all this family, I got all these possessions, all these things going good, and there's Esau. I would, my heart might drop a little bit. I might get a little bit fearful, a little bit anxious, a little bit like, okay, God, what are we going to do? I know that you called me to where I'm at, but what am I going to do? And so we see kind of what Jacob's reaction is in this in Genesis 32. It says, then Jacob sent messengers ahead to his brother Esau, who was living in the region of Seir in the land of Edom. He told them, give this message to my master Esau. Humble greetings from your servant Jacob. Until now I have been living with Uncle Laban, and now I own cattle, donkeys, flocks of sheep and goats, and many servants, both men and women. I have sent these messengers to inform my Lord of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to me. It doesn't sound like Jacob is living in this season of victory. It doesn't sound like Jacob's like, oh yeah, God's got me. I'm good. I'm not worried about nothing. God's got me. That doesn't sound like what he's saying there. It sounds like to me what Jacob is saying is, oh no, there's my brother. There's my past. There's everything I did and everything I left behind. God, how am I going to handle this? Lord, what am I going to do next? And sometimes we can get there, right? We can get there where the past sneaks up on us. You know, maybe we got through something in our lives, a trial, a situation, but next thing you know, it seems like it just reared its ugly head again. And all of a sudden, like Jacob in that season, he's sitting there and he's saying, oh no, there's my past. 
How do I handle my past? How do I get myself out of this situation? Maybe I'll just submit to my past. Maybe I'll just tell my past, it's okay, it's not that bad, you know. I, I can maybe, maybe I can settle with my past. Maybe I can settle with my sin in my life. That's not the answer. Not the answer to say to my past that it's okay and I'm going to keep living in my past. No, the past has to get past. It has to become something in my rear view mirror. So then Jacob prays, oh God of my grandfather Abraham, because that's the first thing we ought to do when the past starts coming back into our lives. We ought to start praying. We ought to start saying, Lord Jesus, I don't know the circumstance, but I know if you're in it, it's going to be okay. It's going to turn out for my good. It's going to be all right, Jesus. I know, Lord, if I put my faith in you, all things will come to my good. And so that's what he does. He says, oh God of my grandfather Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, oh Lord, you told me return to your own land and to your relatives. And you promised me I will treat you kindly. But, but Lord, I'm not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed this Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. And now my household fills two large camps. Oh, Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I am afraid that he is coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promised me I will surely treat you kindly and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. I believe that Jacob knew what Esau had lost and had given up. That is the reason I believe Jacob was so fearful. He knew what he had taken from his brother. So Jacob wants to make sure this thing might not go south or sideways. He doesn't want it to get all messed up. And I can imagine Jacob saying, let's do our best just to handle this situation so that Esau would be less likely to kill me and everyone else or take everything we have. And so in Genesis 32, it says we see what Jacob plans to do and a little bit into what he is thinking in this situation. It's a little insight into what Jacob's thinking. And Jacob gave the same instructions to the second and third herdsmen and to all who followed behind the herds. You must say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. And Jacob thought, I will try to appease him by sending gifts ahead of me when I see him in person. Perhaps he will be friendly to me. So the gifts were sent on ahead while Jacob spent the night in the camp. And it was that same night, Jacob staying back in the camp, is visited by God. Jacob had a fateful night in the presence of God, and Jacob would no longer be known as Jacob, but having wrestled with God, he becomes Israel. And so like us as Christians, there was a past I had to come out of. There was a situation I had to be brought out of. 
But like I said, there must be a prayer room moment when I get alone with God and I begin to get into a wrestling match with my past and with God. I must begin to change my mindset in that prayer room and allow God's love to transform my heart and change who I am. And it can only happen in that private place of that prayer room. When I seek God. Now, understand this. When I get to an altar, I can also get privately with God. Now, you say, how is that possible? It's because God is transcendent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's everywhere. So when you get here, yes, you can get alone with God. And there can be change and transformation that happens in who you are. But sometimes those wrestling matches, those, those moments of me understanding God's purpose and understanding what he's trying to tell me have to happen in a private setting. They have to happen in a place where I can get alone with God and everything else is shut out and I just start to listen to what he's saying. Blocking out the world, all the distractions of the world and just sitting with God. So why do we find, though, that in Malachi, this statement that God hated Esau and loved Jacob? Well, before there can ever be a name change, there must first be a change in that person's heart. There must be a wrestle with God, a divine wrestling match, not in the public eye, but the wrestling match must take place in the private. And the most brutal battle we wage is not with the enemies of our soul. It's not with the brother who divides us. It is not the spouse who is not serving God. The single battle that decides this war's outcome is within. You fight the war within on the battlefield of the mind, the body, and the soul. And Jacob had to first fight this battle before he could be fully in the promises of God. Esau was unable to win that battle from within. Esau's failure to wait and to be disciplined in the process is a lesson that we can derive from the story of Esau and Jacob. And God intends for all of us to be in that promise. So I believe that with everything that I am, I believe God has intended that all men and women be saved in God's final promises. But it requires us to be patient and disciplined for God. And God looks over his people, and I imagine it often that it will break his heart to know how there are times that we are not suitably obedient or are disciplined to his word. But I do not subscribe to the thought that we are without hope to find a great magnitude of discipline in our lives, but I have witnessed many falls off the path due to giving up on what they knew was once right. We cannot be those people who give in to the temptation to be cold or warm. There must be a fire that is within us. A fire that looks like Jacob's desire. A fire that is unquenchable and determined. It is the fire that will produce a disciplined life. Not out of sheer obedience, but a fire birthed out of natural desire. If we learn from these passages today, we must see they are there for our improvement. And God does not want us to be cold or warm, but to flame the fires within and be on fire for him. And God has set us up for a time in which we will see the greatest and the most exciting time of the church. I have heard the rumblings of the body that we are in a season of change, a season of new beginnings. And with all seasons, there are defining moments. 
And we must understand that it is not expedient to rely on past experiences or to rely on things we think God is doing. Instead, we must dig it out and realize it is about what he will do, not just what he has done. And the question in Malachi is, how did you love us? And that came from the people who undervalued God and had given up on God. But God has not given up on us. I'm closing. You can come, musicians. Eight years ago, I walked into this church and I witnessed God for the first time. I experienced God as I had never felt God in my life. It changed me. It shaped me into the man that you see here today. But I came with a stern warning and caution to the body in the house tonight or those that would be listening online to me later. God has set us up to see a birth of revival as we have never witnessed before in this local assembly. You have heard that there have been those who have come before me and said that, and others will say it after me. But I declare that the revival we want will not come from those who are lukewarm or cold. This revival will come when we begin to worship God with reckless abandonment. When we stop living without a care for tomorrow, but understanding that tomorrow will come with great opportunities to reach this world outside this church. It is time that we as a body eliminate the distractions and the quarrying of push and pull of the positions or titles this world would try to bestow on us. My dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, you can stand with me this evening. I believe that if we are going to tear down those idols and tear down those strongholds and begin to live in the glory of God, we must first start to make some declarations in our life. We have to say that anxiety has no power no longer in my life. That depression can no longer be a defining thing for me. That I will no longer be an addict, but I will live for him. We have to begin to say, I will love you like I love Jesus because he first loved me and in that love I will see transformation happen we're gonna see transformation happen for our lives because when we start loving each other like we're supposed to not to say that we don't but we can always get better and when we start loving each other like the church is supposed to love each other, and we start loving the world like the church is supposed to love the world, we will watch God bring great revival to Kansas City. We will watch when Kansas City starts to do things that the rest of the world will say, how did that happen in Kansas City? Because God did it. Because we believe God for it. We believe that anxiety and depression and all those addictions could be cast away. We believed in the power of God because he is good. He's worthy to be praised. If you would this evening, come find an altar and pray. God wants to do something here tonight. If you believe that, come up and pray. Jesus, we believe it, God. We believe, Lord, that you want to transform hearts and help those that are in situations, God.
We believe it this evening, Lord, that you have a miracle in store. We believe in the signs and wonders that were apostles once preached about. We believe, God, that there can be a shaking of a prison cell door. We believe, God, that there can be a change in someone's attitude and mind. And Lord, we give you glory because you are the one that is worthy of it all. Lord, we, we can't do this without you, Jesus. You are worthy, God. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Yes, Lord, you are worthy, Jesus.